So uh, during the summer, as I said, our, our lone vocational elder, uh, Lee Davis, has been away on sabbatical. And Lee will be back on August 30th, though he'll also be back briefly to preach one sermon on uh, July 19th, which is only about three weeks away now. So meanwhile, throughout the summer, the uh, other elders have been, here at Northman, have been taking turns preaching through the book of Philippians, um, which we should hopefully finish up if all goes well before Lee returns. Last week, Greg Adams finished up chapter one for us, um, where he encourages us to walk worthy of Christ and knowing Christ. The week before that, Mark Shooter challenged us with a sermon, asking us, you know, what's our purpose here? And he helpfully answered that for us from Philippians 1.21, to, well, the reason why we're here, to live is Christ. And then Harvey Geichem and myself preached uh, the early parts of uh, uh, chapter one of Philippians in the prior weeks. So today we find ourselves uh, at the beginning of chapter two of Philippians. So I'm going to be preaching for in the first 11 verses. If you would, please read with me Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So the Apostle Paul writes the following. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Very famous passage and a very encouraging passage. But the main thing I want us to focus on, and I believe it's the main focus of Paul writing this letter, okay, is I want us to see from this passage that as a local church, we're to be unified, and this is any local church, to be unified through humility that's empowered by Christ's example and our union with Christ. Okay? So I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to actually preach this passage in reverse. So I first want us to look at verses 5 through 11, which is the sort of theological meat of the passage, which, where Paul recounts Christ's humiliation and also his exaltation. And then we're going to return to verse 5, and then we'll look at the first four verses, which is more of the practical application part, where we see how Christ's example is, and our union with him actually empowers this sort of humility and brings about unity in the local church. Okay, so that's the sort of game plan. Right? So let's look at the second set of verses first. So first I want us to see... The example of Christ gives us power for true humility in verses 5 through 11. Now, starting in verse 6 and going through 11, Paul gives us the perfect example of Christian humility, okay? which is obviously Christ himself and then also Christ in his exaltation. But before looking at verses 6 through 11, I want us to look a little bit briefly at verse 5. I'll address this verse in a little more detail uh, later in the sermon, but I want us to know briefly at least what Paul's introducing here. 
He encouraged the Philippians believer in verse 5 to, quote, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's clear that the phrase, this mind, at the beginning of verse 5, is going to refer to the following verses, 6 through 8, where it talks about the attitude of Christ's humility. So when he's saying, have this mind, you have this attitude of humility. I think that's fairly clear. Many English translations of the Bible, okay, and this not including the ESV, but lots of other English translations will translate verse 5 something like the following, which was also yours in Christ Jesus. Thus the verse says something like, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay? So the rendering of that verse in most English Bibles uh, it just conveys the notion that we're to imitate the attitude of Christ's humility. Okay? And I think that's true, and I think it's an implication of the verse. Okay? But I think as we'll return to verse 5 in a little bit, I think also there's a deeper motivation other than just there's an example for us. Okay, so, so we'll just put that to a side. So let's, let's jump into verses 6 through 8 where we actually look at Christ's humility. So Paul recounts in, Christ, in verses 6 through 8 Christ's humiliation, okay, and we'll, he, he spells out exactly what he means by that. In verse 6, the beginning, you see that Paul tells us that Christ was in the form of God. That's what the English Bible says was in the form of God. The wording of this, even in the original language, okay, has caused some people to stumble over its meaning. Okay? It's, it's, it's sort of an odd way to word this. It's clear that the verse is referring to Jesus' pre-incarnated state. So like uh, Josh read from Colossians chapter 1 this morning, Jesus is just not this humble carpenter. He's also God in the flesh. He's the very creator through whom all things were made and all things were made for him. Okay? So it's, it's clear that Paul is referring to, what, to Jesus' existence before he became human and but this verse uh, seems to be claiming, th- some have thought, that maybe Jesus isn't really God. Okay? That somehow he was merely in the form of God. Okay? Some have thought that's what Paul is saying. However, I think it's clear if we look at how the word form comes up in verse 7, okay, that that's not what Paul means. Note in verse 7, it says that Jesus, in his incarnation, took the form of a servant. And later in the verse, he also was found in human form. So that word form keeps popping up. So it seems the repeated use of the word form is being used by Paul to highlight some sort of contrast. Okay? He was in the form of God, so there's this contrast that he had this lofty, high position, and then later uh, he has this lowly and humble position, being in the form of a servant and being in the form of human. So rather than seeing the claim of Christ as when Paul says Jesus was in the form of God as somehow demoting him from full deity, Paul's actually emphasizing his deity. He's saying, look, here's where Jesus was. He was high and lifted up. He was in the very presence of the Father, but he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a human being. So Jesus fully enjoyed the magnificent splendor and grandeur of being, being with God and being God in perfect fellowship with the Trinitarian fullness of God, but he shows his humility, humility by willingly submitting himself to a position of not only taking on human form, but also taking on the form of a servant. Okay. Now again, some scholars will come back, well, that's what Paul really meant. He could have said it a lot simpler. He could have just said, look, Jesus was God, and then he became human. Okay. So if that's what he really meant, he should have just said it more plainly. Okay. But I, I think, actually, he's fairly clear. Look at the remainder of verse 6. Paul says, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is not saying here that Jesus was not equal with God. Rather, it seems that this turn of phrase is being used to highlight Christ's humility again. Okay? For many New Testament scholars, they think the last part of verse 6 can be understood something like the following. 
Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, or as a meaning as not something to be taken advantage of or exploited for his own personal means. If that's right, and I think it is, then verse 6 is emphasizing that even though Jesus is God, enjoying the fullness and the splendor of being in the Godhood before his incarnation, he willingly submitted to his incarnated mission and position, not because he was seeking to take advantage of some sort of self-aggrandizing sort of mission, but for the good and for the glory of others. When Christ came in the world, he did not cease to be God, Paul makes clear, Yet he did, but Paul is also knowing that he did not take full advantage of his godhood when he became uh, poor, when he became humble, but did so for, to the advantage of, the, uh, for, of others. Paul, I think Paul makes this clear in another place. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, he writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, talking about his pre-incarnate state, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I think this is exactly the sort of thing that Paul is emphasizing in Philippians 2. Okay? Um, thus, re, thus Jesus not counting equality uh, with God a thing to be grasped highlights his unwillingness to exploit the full privileges of his deity. Okay? And he's using it for the good of others. Okay? Now, again, the, uh, what I was wondering when I was putting this sermon together, I'm, I'm putting a lot of like, kind of lofty stuff at the beginning. We're, we're going to get to some practical stuff in the first four verses. Okay? But I think this is important to highlight because this is exactly... Paul's point. He's, this, is, this is the power for which we do the practical stuff we're going to talk about later. So let's look at verse 7. Going on to verse 7, historically this verse has been even more difficult to, to translate uh, than verse 6. Even among Orthodox scholars, there's been some uh, uh, difficulty in trying to make sense of it. Particularly, it's been difficult to make clear what Paul means by claiming that Christ made himself nothing, or uh, like in the NIV, the Bible that I grew up with, it says that Christ emptied himself. What does it mean to say that God uh, made himself nothing or Christ emptied himself? Though trying careful not to deny Jesus' full deity, some scholars have thought that Paul meant that somehow when Jesus became human, somehow he put off his mighty attributes of deity when he became human. So when Jesus was incarnated as, a, as an infant in the womb of Mary, somehow he put off his omniscience and his, uh, his all-powerfulness. So all those big, the big God powers, he put those aside. Now he was still God in the sense he was fully holy and moral and perfect. But some people thought he, he put off all the big God powers. Okay. Um, and I think there's good reason to actually deny that interpretation. Okay. We could actually go to various places, particularly in the Gospels, that shows I think that's not true. However, I think we can just look at the structure here of Philippians and see that that interpretation is still incorrect. In verse 7, it's important to see how the verb that's translated in English, made himself nothing, okay, that, that's one verb in Greek, it's being modified by two participles, or let's just call them words or phrases. It's been, that verb is being modified by two other things in that passage in verse 7. It's being modified by the word taking. You see that in verse 7? Uh, he was taking the form of a servant, and also the phrase being born in the likeness of uh, men. Okay. So what that means, okay, grammatically, okay, is just that because they modified the verb, to clarify, um, because they modify these, these two words or phrases are telling us how Christ made himself nothing. Okay? In other words, when Paul says that Christ made himself nothing, he's not claiming that Jesus somehow put off his mighty attributes of deity to one side, but rather he's saying that uh, Christ is high, he's highlighting that Christ humbled himself again. Okay? And how did he humble himself? From his former lofty position, he willingly demoted himself by becoming full, fully human and fully a servant. 
So rather than putting off something like deity, Paul is actually saying that Christ put on something. Namely, he put on human fleshness and the attitude of a servant. So the picture we see so far in in verses 6 and 7 is that here's, here's Jesus, fully God, humbled himself, become man, and not only humbled himself, become man, he also humbled himself by becoming a servant. Okay, you see the progression? There's a lowering on Jesus' own part, lowering himself, this example of humility. Okay? But Paul doesn't stop there. He sees that this humility of Christ goes further. Okay? In verse 8, Paul recounts how Christ's humility of being a human servant brought him obedience unto death, and the most humiliating sort of death in the world known at the time, death on a cross. Now, we rightly, Christians rightly, talk about the cross quite a bit. It's the central picture of the gospel and of our faith. Okay? But we can talk about it so much, and we can wear jewelry that has crosses on it, and pictures of crosses everywhere, that we so over-familiarize ourselves with it, we forget just how incredibly horrible this picture was for somebody living in the first century. Okay? It obviously was this agonizing way for a criminal, or someone who's supposedly a criminal, to be, to be killed. It's a form of capital punishment, okay? But it's also a very humiliating form of punishment, and that was also part of the punishment. Not only are you slowly dying on this uh, piece of wood in agonizing pain, okay, you're also being publicly displayed nude. Okay? This is why when we do passion plays or we have pictures of you know, Christ in the front, we can't, we can't actually present it in full detail, because to do that, we'd have to show him nude. Okay? And not only, if that wasn't humiliating enough, the fact that crucifixion lasted sometimes several days, it was not uncommon for the crucified victim to relieve himself. So this is an incredibly humiliating way to die. And Paul is marking that this is how Christ died. He just didn't die as a servant. He died the death of a cross as a servant. Okay. Um, Now, some people think, actually, that there's even a further sort of uh, highlighting of Christ's humility in these verses. Um, A lot of scholars have noted that there seems to be a lot of similarity of language to this notion of Christ is in the form of God with uh, language in the Genesis uh, creation account, especially the account of the fall. So some New Testament scholars have thought that Paul in Philippians 2.68 is implicitly making a comparison between Christ and Adam. Now, this may be real or not, but I think it's still a good example to hold up and highlight Christ's humility. So let me quote, uh, quote the comparison from uh, one New Testament scholar. The scholar writes, he says, the contrast between Jesus and Adam is striking since Adam in the garden strove to be equal to God and thus rejected God's lordship uh, by eating the fruit of the tree. Christ, on the contrary, though possessing equality with God, in this respect he differed from Adam, did not use his status as a means of enriching himself Indeed, precisely because he was in the form of God and was equal with God, he refused to use his position as a means of self-aggrandizement. He used his status as a platform for giving and self-surrender, not as a bridgehead for praise and self-exaltation. And he ends with this, I think, this really cool quote. He says, the cross, not the crown, was Jesus' path to glory. So whether that comparison is actually implicit in Paul's mind or not, it's a good highlight to hold up the difference between Jesus' humility versus Adam, and by implication, all of us, our supposed notion of humility. So what better example of humility could Paul have given? There's none. 
Jesus, in his pre-incarnated existence, enjoyed the full majesty of being God and being with God, exulting in the perfect love and community in the Godhead among the Father and the Spirit. This is the most lofty position possible in the universe. Nevertheless, Christ humbled himself from this majesty by becoming human, though his deity was not relinquished. He knew hunger, cold, heat, pain, and fellow hate, and he humbled himself even more by becoming a servant. And though he served various people in his lifetime in various ways, he came primarily, according to Mark 10.45, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus, Jesus' greatest act of humility was suffering the death of the cross. And if that's all the story was, great example. But we know that that's obviously not the end of the story. And that's not where Paul ends either. As we know, uh, Paul, uh, as Paul recounts in verses 9 through 11, Christ has been rewarded for his ultimate act of obedient and humble service. He's been given the highest honor possible. He's now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is why when Jesus comes to the disciples after the resurrection, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. You might think, well, that's kind of a weird phrase because wasn't he God before? There's some sense because of his obedient service to the cross, God the Father has now exalted him to a position that he didn't have before. I don't quite know how to understand that. It's a little bit mysterious to me. But I, that's what the Bible tells us. Because of his act of humility, he is now the Lord of Lords. He is now the King of Kings. And as Paul recounts, he's the one to whom all will eventually submit and confess on that last day. Either to their shame or for us, to our glory. For us believers, we will give eternal worship and glory to him because Jesus has given himself in humble sacrifice and love. Now, as I said earlier, many English translations of the Bible render Philippians 2.5 as have this mind among yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I think the example of humility recounted here by Paul is, is definitely um, inspiring. And I believe that is one purpose that Paul has in mind in recounting Christ's humility to us here. But I think we have to be careful because I think it's possible for us to admire Christ's humility while still remaining proud. That's why I believe there's actually something stronger and more empowering going on in verse 5 than simply Christ's example. Again, I believe it is serving as an example, okay? but I think there's something more powerful as well. I'm going to put a slide on the screen that's going to give a comparison to two different translations of Philippians 2.5. The ESV, the Bible I'm reading from, translates Philippians 2.5 as have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay? But that has a different meaning from the other rendering. So like I have an example from the New, New, New American Standard Bible. Have this mind or have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You notice that the second uh, translation of 2.5 is saying adopt a mindset of humility because Jesus is a good example of it. And I think that's true. But the ESV rendering is saying something a little deeper. It's saying the following. Have this mind among yourselves, um, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It means adopt a mindset of humility because this mindset is already yours by virtue of your union with Christ. If that rendering of the Greek is correct, and I think it is actually, then Paul's call to the Philippians to be humble is not primarily grounded in some hope that they can muster up enough feeling to act humble by looking at the example of Christ. Rather, his call to humility to Christians is grounded in a reality that they already have 
in virtue of their union with Christ. Okay. Now, I, I really struggled with trying to understand this for a while, and I think it's just another way of saying something the Bible says repeatedly. Okay. So I think the idea is something like this. If you're a Christian, you've placed your faith in Christ. Okay. And the Bible says various things like this. If you're a Christian, then you have a treasure in a jar of clay. 2 Corinthians 4.7. You have, according to Jesus, a fountain of living water springing up within you. John 4, 14. You, have, you and I, if we have faith in Christ, have access to power that can lead to an abundant harvest. Matthew 13, 8. And this is why when we meet together, whether it's you know, just meeting over coffee, sharing struggles, or coming together for worship on Sundays, we meet together to stir each other up to love and good works, Hebrews 10 and 24. There's something within us, call it union with Christ, call it the gift of the Holy Spirit, whatever, that's within us by virtue of our faith in Christ that gives us the power to do things that we can't do in our own flesh alone. And I think the point that Paul is being here is one thing that you really can't do in your own flesh is truly be humble. True humility, and I'll, we'll see this in the uh, first four verses, but let me give an exam, uh, a definition. This is what I think a biblical example, a biblical definition of humility is. Humility is an attitude that primarily seeks the good of others, not because of how that in the long run will benefit us, okay, but because we're in such awe and full joy because of what Christ has done for us in his humble service of the cross. This is the sort of humility that I think no one can muster up on their own. We can act humble. We can do things that look like humility. And on the surface, nobody would know the difference. Okay? But true humility, humility that really seeks the good of others, that's something I think only Christ can do within us. So Christ's humility is indeed an inspiring story that should cause us to desire to imitate him. Okay? I don't think that's not the point. I'm not saying that that's not true too. But I believe Paul's saying something even deeper, and that is he's encouraging Christians to understand that they have access to this true humility through our union with Christ, what Christ has done for us. And I think this idea starts to become more concrete in Philippians 2, 1-4, as we see how Christ's humility is the key to unity in the local church. So we saw in verses 5-11 how the example of Christ gives us power for true humility. I want us to now see in verses 1-4 through how Christians should be unified in the local church. In verse 1, Paul lists several characteristics that he believes are true of Philippian believers. He writes, notice the word if at the beginning, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And then he goes on in verse 2 to encourage them to humility. Now by using the, the, the little if clause at the beginning of verse 1, I don't think Paul is questioning whether these characteristics are in fact true of the Philippian church. Note in verse 1 that Paul also comments that they are in Christ and they have participation in the Spirit. Okay? And it's clear throughout the, 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 the whole point of the letter, he's writing to them, encouraging them because of the love they've shown him. Here he was in prison in Rome, and they send him gifts, they send him uh, uh, encouragement. So he knew that these things were true of them. Okay? Paul's signaling here, though, that due to their faith in Christ, as well as any believer in Christ, who has union with Christ, okay, there is a strong connection between believers and their Savior through the Spirit. It's because of this reality of being in Christ, Paul lists the characteristics as being true of them in verse 1. So basically, I think this is similar to what Paul's saying in Philippians 2.5. He says, hey, you know, you Philippians, 
need to understand by your faith in Christ, you're in union with Christ, and because of that, there's certain realities that should be true of you. And furthermore, because these things listed in verse 1 are true, Paul says that these things should lead to unity. Okay? So in verse 1, Paul lists four things that were true of these Christian uh, Philippians, and by implication should also lead them to unity as a local body of believers. Thus, these are things that should be true of any church, any Christian, and that should lead any church to be a unified church. Okay, so here's where the practical part comes in. So first, note that Paul claims in verse 1 that since these recipients are in Christ, they should be encouraged. And since they're encouraged in Christ, they should naturally encourage one another. If you're an encouraged person, you should naturally encourage other people as well. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians are always happy. But it should be the case that even in our sorrow, Philippians 4, 7 says that we should have peace that surpasses understanding. That we should have a peace that doesn't make sense. Because okay? that kind of peace doesn't work in the world. When bad circumstances come along, that peace disappears. But for Christians, we should have a peace even in the midst of horrible circumstances that's still there. This is why also Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that even though we're sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. That sounds like insanity in a certain, in a certain way, doesn't it? And it is insanity from the view of the world. But for, the, for a Christian, because we have encouragement in Christ, there's always a kernel of encouragement with us, even in the midst of that. Because we have encouragement in Christ, Paul writes, we have the power to encourage others, regardless of our circumstances. And this should lead to being a unified group. Who wouldn't want to be around a bunch of encouragers? We know what it's like to be around a bunch of people who complain and you know, pick at you. You don't want to hang around those kind of people. But being around people who encourage you, who doesn't want that? Okay. And that's the way a church should be. Paul also writes that since believers are in Christ, they have comfort that comes from God's love in Christ. As 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Thus Christians should also love others. Why? Because Christ has loved us. See, this is why it's important to the sort of theological stuff's important first, right? This is what gives us the, the power, the strength to do these things. 1 John 4, 7, another famous passage. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. The fact that we love shows that we are Christians. So if we're truly in Christ, then we should lo show love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then this should obviously naturally lead to unity as well. Who wouldn't want to be around a bunch of people that love you? Right? I'm, st I'm stating this as a silly question because it, it should be obvious why this should unify us. Being around loving people makes us want to be around those people. Three, Paul says that since the individual Philippian Christians have participation or fellowship with the Spirit, each Christian thus has a real and deep common ground of unity with other believers. Having something in common with people uh, naturally leads to unity between them. Okay? When you, I was in this, uh, before I came to Ohio State, I did a master's degree at Western Michigan University. I was wearing my Western Michigan hoodie to Target last night, and this guy, an employee there goes, go Broncos! And I was like, oh yeah, Broncos are the, the mascot of Western Michigan. I forgot about that. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm really a Buckeye. Okay? But you know, he was trying to find common ground between us. Okay? He, had, he evidently knew that Western Michigan was the Broncos, you know? And so it should be clear, other believers, we have a deeper, we have more than just a common ground that we like the same team or something. We both have fellowship in the same spirit. 
The same Holy Spirit that resides within me resides within you. That's why, by the way, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever had, I'm sure you've had this experience, where you could go uh, to some place and you meet a total stranger, you find out they're a Christian, you immediately feel a close bond to that person, even though you don't know this person. And I'm, I, for myself, I can tell you that I have flesh and blood relatives who I love, but I don't feel as close to them because they're not Christians as I do to some of you. That's not just some sort of psychological upshot. That's, a, that's based on a deep reality. We have a commonality. The spirit that's changed me has changed you. And since all believers share in the same spirit, this deep common ground should naturally extend to unified fellowship. We're not complete strangers, even though we may not be related by blood or whatever. But we are related by our spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Lastly, in verse 4, Paul also says that Christians should know the true affection and sympathy that comes from God. And because of this, they should show this to others as well. Each of us know the depth of our own sin, or at least to some extent. I'm, I'm convinced that my pride often hides some of my sin. But I, I understand what Christ has saved me from. And because of this, we understand how God could have rightly destroyed us for our sin. Okay? Christ didn't have to die on the cross for me. But he did. God has shown us mercy and grace in Christ. Therefore, we have motivation to show tenderness and sympathy to others. As frustrating as other people can be, and frustrating as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ can be, God has has shown us sympathy and tenderness. We need to show sympathy and tenderness with each other as well. And it should be clear that if there's a group of people doing that together, being kind, extending, quick to forgive, that they're going to be unified. So given the reality of the Philippians' believers' union with Christ, as stated in verse 1 and also in verse 5, in verse 2, Paul goes on to tell the Philippian church how they might make his joy complete. Again, as we've remarked before, and as if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, the word joy or rejoice comes up multiple times throughout the book. Okay? Matter of fact, it occurs some 16 times throughout this short letter. So it's clear that Paul deeply felt this emotion while he was writing the Philippian church. Okay? Uh, and he makes it clear that this was due to the love shown to him in Christ by the Philippian believers. He even calls them, in Philippians 4.1, he calls them his joy. And here in Philippians 2.2, he tells them that they could make him even happier if they would be unified as a local church body. Now, we're not exactly sure exactly what was the source of this disunity. I mean, why was there, or why was there a lack of unity within uh, the Philippian church? Okay. Uh, we don't really know. Chapter 3 tells us that there were some false teachers among them, so that led to some disunity. Um, Chapter 4, at the beginning, Paul urges two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to reconcile. That may have been the source of some disunity. We don't exactly know what uh, the disunity was going on within the Philippian church. But whatever the actual problem or problems that led to their disunity, Paul is just urging him here in verse 2 to be unified, and then he goes on in the verse to describe what true Christian unity looks like. Okay? And he explicates this in three different ways. One, he says a unified church basically is of the same mind. Or, to put it another way, they're doctrinally on the same page. They agree on the core tenets of the Christian faith. At the beginning of verse 2, Paul says he wants the Philippians to be of the same mind. If you notice the end of verse 2, he says for them to be of one mind. Now this is obviously a reference to right thinking, or in this context, focusing upon biblical truth. For the apostle rightly knew that our thoughts and our attitudes, the things within us, 
These things are the basis of all our words and actions. We heard the old phrase, um, what's in the well of the heart will come up in, or come up in the bucket of the mouth, or you know, what's in a man, garbage in, garbage out. These are all sort of phrases that highlight this reality. Okay? We show on the outside, we can put on a good face for a while, okay, but what's truly in us will come out when times get rough. Okay? So the inner life is an important part of the Christian faith, obviously, and it's emphasized throughout the Bible, and Paul emphasizes it throughout. For example, it comes up multiple times in this very letter. If you look down at verse 5, he talks about this mind. Chapter 3, verse 15, he talks about the importance of the mind. And chapter 4, verse 8, he talks about what's important to have their mind focused upon. Okay? And think about somewhere else like Romans 12, 2, so tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Okay? So the importance of the mind to the Christian faith is incredibly, incredibly central. So Paul emphasizes here in Philippians 2, 2, that true Christian unity is constituted, at least in part, okay, by having an agreement of mind. And surely this agreement of mind is built primarily upon God's word. And so true Christian unity in a local church okay, must be of the same mind. They must agree on the core tenets of the faith. Note that this includes not only the leadership of the church to those men who are to rightly handle the word of God, according to 2 Timothy 2, 15, but it includes... The idea that all the people in the congregation are, as the Bible also says, seeking not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So true unity in the local church requires being of the same mind. Primarily, this means the Bible as read and taught and lived within the church. That that should be a no-brainer, right? But Paul doesn't just characterize true Christian unity as in terms of the same mind or thoughts. A church can teach right doctrine and still be disunified. He goes on in verse 2 to say that the Philippian believers should be unified by having the same love. Paul thus characterizes true Christian unity not as just cerebral or intellectual, but it's also effectual. Something to do with the emotions. Okay? True, true Christian unity is marked by love for one another. As our Lord plainly said in John 13, 35, that all this people will know that you are my disciples if you do what? You love one another, right? That's how they'll know whether you're Christians or not. Thus, true Christian unity in the local church must be seeking to serve one another in love. So true unity in the local church requires being of the same love, purposely seeking to love and serve one another. And again, who wouldn't want to be part of a group like that? You see how this naturally leads to unity. But Paul also mentions a third sort of thing which a unified church possesses. Lastly, he describes in verse 2, that Christian unity is being in full accord. I, I, uh, there's a church, that's uh, actually, uh, I was about to say a church I, I heard of, but I actually know the church. First Baptist Orlando, which is a pretty huge church down in Florida. Um, their pastor, who's now retired, um, when he had his 20-year anniversary of the church, they bought him a Honda Accord, and they used this verse as the basis for why they wanted to give him this gift. Okay? They were in full accord. And um, and um, I was I was talking. His name is Dr. Jim Henry. He's a he's still alive. He's a really nice man. Uh, he was telling he, he was joking, but he's and he'd had the card for several years at that point. I, I bet he drove that thing into the ground because the church gives you a car. You're like I got to drive this thing till it just falls. The wheels fall off. And he, he so he'd been driving for several years, and he said, "Man, I I wish Mercedes had made an Accord." <laughs> <laughs> but what's this idea of being in full Accord? Okay. Now, it overlaps, I think the notion overlaps a bit with the notion of being of one mind or being the same mind, okay? But it also highlights or primarily highlights the notion of being, having the same goals or having the same purpose, 
So uh, being in full accord primarily emphasizes being on the same sort of mission. Okay? Um, evangelical and California pastor Rick Warren has a well-known best-selling book called The Pur- Purpose Driven Life. How many of you have read that book? It, it's actually a really good book. Um, he, wrote, he wrote a book uh, before that that was actually a little more impactful for me. It was a, a, it was a, it was a book primarily aimed at pastors called The Purpose Driven Church. That's why when he came out with the book The Purpose Driven Life, he's like, ah, right. This is 2.0, okay? Um, but those are, those are two very good books, because they've been best. As a matter of fact, I, was, I looked on Amazon last night, and the, uh, the, the Purpose Driven Life is now in a second edition. It has been since 2013, so it's still selling very well. It's been very encouraging for many Christians. Um, those things about Rick Warren that actually I differ with, nevertheless, I, I, I can say with a clear conscience that he's a very godly, biblically-minded teacher and author. And I recommend those books to you. There's a lot of good in them. Okay? And, but one incredibly positive thing about those books that I want to highlight here okay, is that they've gotten a lot of evangelical churches and Christians to start thinking about the purpose of the church. Uh, and perhaps for the first time. Okay? In my opinion, it's usually a very good thing for a person or an organization to step back and ask, what's my purpose? Okay? Because in the daily hum and the daily activities, it's really easy to forget that. So I think we need to be mindful as a church, as a local church, to be mindful. What's the big picture? What's the overarching purpose? Why do we do this thing? Okay. Why do we come here week after week? Why do we go to shepherd group? Why do we take meals to people? Uh, why do we watch kids in nursery? Why do we do these things? Okay. We can every week habitually do these sort of things. But we can also just be passively walking through this set of religious activities without really thinking about them in any sort of purposeful way. And there are various problems with doing that. Okay? But the main point I want to highlight here, as individual Christians, we need to be more unified uh, in this notion by thinking more purposefully. If we're not, we're, we're typically like the following sort of picture. We're like fans at a football, Saturday football game. So you get a bunch of people together. They're all wearing the same colors. They say boo and yeah at the same time. But after it's over, they just go their separate ways. Their purpose doesn't really go beyond the event. That's what they come together for. They come together for this event. The event's over. Their purpose is done. That's not what we are supposed to be about, though. We should be more than just about some activity or group of activities. These group of activities should be serving as a means to some greater purpose, mission, or goal. Do you know what the mission of this church is? I had to write it down, so I'm going to tell you what it is. This is on our website. We exist to glorify God through the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, we seek to produce maturing disciples who will be responsible, model, proclaim Christ in their communities and around the world. In other words, we're here about the Great Commission, right? We're here to spread the gospel of Christ to the glory of God. Everything we do from having a picnic to watching kids, to singing songs, to listening to a sermon, is to bo- should be towards furthering that goal. There's many different jobs and facets that make up the same mission or the same purpose. But a, but a, a group is truly unified when they understand that each, mission, each part of that, each facet, each job is contributing to that overall goal. So there will, of course, be a unification when people have this notion of being of the same mind the same mission, and having the same love. So in verse uh, 1, Paul gives us four things that should be true of Christians 
that should lead to unity in the local church. And in verse 2, he describes what true Christian unity should look like, having the same mind, same love, and same mission. In verses 3 and 4, this is where we're going to end our sermon today, Paul describes how this true Christian unity can fail, and conversely, how it's to be achieved. At the beginning of verse 3, he commands that we should do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Paul is saying here that Christians should not do things out of selfish ambition or with the goal of promoting their own personal or individual agendas. And it should be obvious why that would be problematic to local Christian unity. If everyone, or even just a few Christians within a group, are just always seeking to promote themselves or their own personal agendas, this is only going to lead to infighting and bickering. I don't know what your experience has been. I've been in churches where this is true of it from time to time. It's no fun to be in a church like that. Now, every church is going to have, it's not to say that a church is problem-free, okay? but there's, different with, there's a difference of attitude in a church that approaches problems out of humility and a church that approaches problems out of conceit and rivalry. That's Paul's point. But it's difficult, I'd say impossible, it's difficult to do anything that's not tinged with selfishness or personal agenda to a certain, certain degree. How can churches, in particular individual Christians, avoid doing things out of rivalry or conceit? Well, Paul gives us some help. He goes on in verse 3 to say, we must be humble by, quote, counting others more significant than ourselves. So according to God's word, a unified church is one where individual Christians think and thus treat others as more significant than themselves. And if that sounds too opaque, Paul clarifies in verse 4 that we should look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul does not say that we must completely sacrifice all our personal interests on the altar of humility, but rather the humble person does not selfishly serve personal interests to the neglect of others. Thus, true Christian humility is characterized by people who are seeking ways to help their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. A lack of humility does the opposite. It looks to satisfy the self. And this sort of lack of humility, pride, sneaks in very easily in almost anything we do. And it's always easy easy to see this in other people, right? So here's an example. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of marriage counseling in my life, but I can say this is even true of myself from time. It's not uncommon for people when they're unsatisfied in marriage to say something like the following. And he or she just doesn't do it for me anymore. They don't meet my needs the way they once did. I hear that word my come up quite a bit. And when you start thinking like that, maybe you, start, you start to see things. Yeah, not only is that wrong with her, that's wrong with her, and that's wrong with her, and that's wrong with her. You start to get a laundry list of all the things that don't satisfy you. Same is true in the church. Something can act, and it can actually be a real issue, by the way. It can actually be something that the church has hurt you or somebody in the church has done wrong and that upsets you, and you start to fester with that. You say, you know what else I don't like about this church? Not only does so-and-so get on my nerves. You know, we go too long. We don't do this. We don't do the right kind of music. We don't have the right sort of nursery space. You know, whatever. You can start giving a laundry list of things that you don't like. Very easy to do. And often this is rooted in just a sort of, just a pride. 
You no longer come here with the attitude, I'm here to serve others. I'm here to be served. And if you don't meet my needs, guess what? There's another franchise down the street with a cross on it, and I'll go to that one. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand me here. I don't think the, the, the Bible is saying here, if you're a Christian, you don't have a right to complain about anything in local church. That's not true. There are pro- there's things that are imperfect in any church, including ours, that need to be worked on and need to be helped. Okay. But he's talking about an uh, attitude. An attitude that lacks humility is one that says, not only do I not like these things, I don't want to be part of this group because it's no longer meeting my needs. And we need to understand that's rooted in this sort of pride. So the overall picture that Paul's giving here in the first four verses, in verse one, he assumes the Philippian believers have union with Christ. That displays itself in characteristics that should lead to humility and unity. In verse two, he describes what true Christian unity looks like. It's of the same mind, same love, same mission. In verse three and four, he says that true Christian unity can only be accomplished by humility, looking to others to help others, not simply to satisfy oneself. Which just brings us back to verse five and the importance of highlighting our union with Christ. I think the Bible is teaching us here that the church cannot be unified without true humility, and such humility cannot be manufactured in our own strength. Any measure of unity displayed in a church, apart from true humility, is going to be fraudulent to some degree. You and I can put on a good face for a while, especially when things are going good. We can smile, and we can you know, get along. But when something bad comes along, when circumstances don't go our way, when things we don't like happen, the truth of our supposed humility is going to come out. That facade is going to crack. We'll begin to complain about our needs and our desires not being met, and our true attitude is going to come forth. So how can we have true humility that's not a facade? How can our humility be a product of our union with Christ? Again, I think Paul gives us a key in highlighting our union with Christ in this passage. Uh, a really helpful little book that I recommend to you is a book, uh, you should write this down, by C.J. Mahaney called Humility, True Greatness. It's a, it's a very thin little book, and I, I found it to be one of the most helpful, practical books on, on how to be more humble, be more Christ-like. And so uh, I was pleased to, I was sitting this passage to go back to the book to see that he says something very similar to what Paul's saying here. He says one of the things that he's learned uh, to help him be humble, be truly humble, is to reflect upon what Christ has done for him at the cross. And he gives quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott and several other well-known Christian leaders who have said that it's impossible to be prideful and also look at Jesus. I think I, I, think I can understand that. Yeah. I know how hard it is. Have you, ever done the, have you ever been mad at someone and tried to pray for them? Either you're going to quit praying, <laughs> which is usually what I do, or you, you just can't keep being mad at him. There's something about coming before Christ that somehow melts that stuff away. Now, I don't think this is a magical cure-all. I'm not saying that if you have pride, all you have to do is think about Jesus for a few seconds and boom, pride goes away. Okay. But I do think it's saying that by focusing and reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us, okay, this is part of daily spiritual disciplines, praying, seeking God in his word, this etches away at this pride, and it shows it for what it is more and more. This is something we'll probably struggle with till our dying day, till we see Christ and we'll be made like him, perfect and whole. Okay? But until then, we have Christ, not only his example, but also his reality within us, the Holy Spirit, 
that changes us, help us to be humble. And hopefully that will take root in us because there's no way, there's no way that this church could ever stay unified or any church apart from that. And if, God forbid, the day comes where North Point ceases to exist, you can bet that it will probably be because of pride. Most churches close their doors because of that. So may God save us from this. Help us, Lord, to cling to him and change us that we can be truly humble in order that we can be truly unified. Let's pray.